Good evening and welcome to Gray Matters. This just in, Metallica's drummer's ears ring. This, I'm told, is uh, amongst the headline news on uh, CNN's website at this very moment. Uh, we look forward to updating you with uh, new information as it arrives on this uh, shocking auditory phenomenon. Well, I hope uh, this evening finds you well. My name is Jim Dwyer, and welcome to Gray Matters, the weekly news and media analysis review program. Dick Whaley uh, is enjoying uh, the evening off uh, over the holiday season here, and uh, very quiet downtown here tonight, so ample parking for uh, whatever events may yet draw you down to the downtown area, films perhaps, or a show later this evening, perhaps as well. Well, following up on the musical segue <clears throat> of the uh, previous musical program there, Kraftwerk's Trans-Europe Express, I want to open with just a quick sort of a kudos uh, to an advance in high-speed rail transportation 
that is uh, taking place in China. And this is from the, this morning's uh, Financial Times. Chinese train sets speed record. Uh, an 11-hour trip cut to three hours. And this is a theme we'll return to in just a couple of minutes when we talk about time zones briefly. Uh, cutting to smaller numbers, not always the uh, wisest thing. But uh, the idea of high-speed rail, of course, is not a new one. Uh, but in an environment where energy costs, transportation costs uh, grow and mount uh, with each passing month, the future and sustainability of such systems as have uh, you know exist up until this point really makes you wonder if America has uh, waited too long to get involved in the transfer from expressway motorways automobiles to a more sophisticated rail transportation system. <clears throat> this uh, new train in China, I'm reading from Tom Mitchell's article, he's writing from the Wuhan province, is called the Harmony, and it's an express train, so I'll read here. The Harmony Express raced 1,100 kilometers in less than three hours on Saturday, traveling from Guangzhou, capital of southern Guangdong province, to the central city of Wuhan, the journey previously took at least 11 hours. The improvement illustrates how China's huge investment in infrastructure is dramatically shrinking the country. Yet the economics of the new service, which runs 56 times a day, remains unproven amid a build-it-and-they-will-come approach to transport. Quote, China has focused on building expressways, but that is an American method, said Zheng Qiangzheng a Guangzhou-based infrastructure expert and government advisor. He continues observing, quote, Expressways are not suited for China, which has large numbers of people, but little space to spare. China should learn from Japan and Europe, close quote. Uh, Mitchell continues uh, in his article here, The Harmony Express, which reached a top speed of 394 kilometers per hour in pre-launch trials, traveled at an average rate of 350 kilometers per hour on its debut. This uh, compared with a maximum service speed of 300 kilometers per hour for Japan's Shinkansen bullet trains and France's TGV service. In America, Amtrak's Asala Express service takes three and a half hours to trundle between Boston and New York, a distance of only 300 kilometers the uh, program looks to be quite impressive. Uh, the quantity of rail track that China intends to lay down by 2012, uh, we're projecting 18,000 kilometers of track. At present, the cost of a first-class ticket from Guangzhou to Wuhan is $115, which might seem reasonable by our standards, but is uh, a little high uh, in the Chinese pocketbook. But I think that uh, this really is the future, and it might not necessarily need to go quite that fast. But uh, as we've noted numerous times here on Gray Matters, this country once did have a rail system, which was largely dismantled with the advent of the widespread availability of the automobile, particularly in the post-World War II years. Uh, the Ann Arbor.com uh, fairly recently even featured an article about the streetcar system that once uh, 
ran a limited run uh, around the downtown area right here in town. And these sorts of uh, bygone remnants of a, of a simpler time might actually turn out to be good ideas to return to uh, in the long haul. Uh, for example, uh, still a large number of commuters uh, who travel back and forth to Detroit. The usefulness of a uh, sort of a semi-high-speed rail transport between uh, workaday locations and uh, commuter outlying areas. Something that the state should have been thinking about considering a long time ago. Now, of course, that the funds are lacking, it'll only result to, uh, in further delays. Well, I mentioned uh, the condensation of hours turning a once-11-hour train trip into a just-under-four-hour train trip. Uh, brain damage award for Dmitry Medvedev, the Russian president, who bizarrely last month uh, proposed consolidating the 11 time zones of Russia into four in the cause of economic efficiency. Well, that's an idea so uh, harebrained that uh, George W. Bush himself might have conceived it. It doesn't really work that way. <laughs> it's funny how people like to wake up and have their work a day uh, occur at the same time in which the natural arc of the sun, uh, you know, coincides with their own business. It's impossible to tell people uh, by shifting time zones when to work and when to go home. It's uh, a natural thing to simply allow the uh, expanse of the measurable world to dictate its own uh, parameters of time measurement. This interesting article by Clive Cookson about previous attempts to alter the uh, clock. China, for example, uh, famously under Mao Zedong, reduced China's five time zones to just one uh, to <laughs> symbolize the assertion of strong central order under communism. <clears throat> but um, point of fact, the people in the outlying districts continue to uh, work, wake, sleep, and go home on the uh, natural clock of the human body and, the again, the arc of the sun, even though official time is actually and still, uh, still measured that way in some areas. Kind of an interesting article because it details the manner in which Greenwich Mean Time became the standard time, and it had to do with the rail. Uh, the need for accurate measurement of time from one village to another, simple matter to, uh, in one village, for example, to gauge the time by a sundial and constellations at night, uh, readable for all in a community by a village church clock, uh, for example. But uh, when rail transport between cities necessitated accurate gauging of time and scheduled arrivals and departures and so forth... Um, it had to be, and so even America fell into step with Greenwich Mean Time uh, when it was working out its own rail schedules. So uh, to backtrack to the uh, bullet trains, uh, we do need to be more efficient, and of course uh, time is money, the old uh, capitalist dictum, uh, largely true. If uh, time is money, we should have been wiser longer ago 
and been thinking about ways in which time would be easier to deal with. Uh, of course, Americans are now spoiled with the uh, access to cars, and so it'll be a difficult sell. Anybody who's seen the film, a fine uh, film, uh, How to Get Ahead in Advertising, which an argument is uh, put forward for commuter trains, uh, despite the occasional inconvenience of said, the uh, greater good. But again, individual liberties, it's a hard uh, one to step back from on the car. Uh, while we're in brain damage mode here, uh, Dmitry Medvedev getting one for wanting to go from 11 time zones to four. That's not really going to work. We'll see how that pans out for him. <clears throat> uh, this is uh, amusing and worth noting, and it shows that everybody has fans, and no matter how bad you are, if you're a birthday boy, you're going to get some special things. Uh, dated uh, December 22nd, 2009. Communists mark the 130th birthday of Joe Stalin. And there's no article here, uh, but the picture is lovely. A very lengthy procession of people, old-timers, geezers, uh, not too many youngsters in the Joe Stalin fan club, I'm not imagining, at least out on this cold, blustery day for uh, the birthday boy. The caption on the photo, uh, again, of this lengthy uh, row of people, it's hard to gauge the depth here of the photo as the Kremlin stands in the background, uh, easily uh, over 100 yards. Line wraps around the back of the building. Captioned thusly, Russian communists hold up a portrait of Joseph Stalin as they queue to lay flowers at his grave in Red Square, Moscow, yesterday. The Communist Party called for a moratorium on criticizing the former Soviet dictator so the country could celebrate his 100th birthday in peace. In death, Joseph Stalin brings peace to his people. But only for a day, because it's fair game to uh, criticize uh, one of the most notorious dictators in human history yet again. And for that, we are thankful. But uh, uh, it, it is odd to see this many people lined up to lay flowers on the wreath of Joseph Stalin. But, uh, hey, it's their party, right? Pun unintended. Well, well some interesting things in the oil world that I've been wanting to get to for a while, where things have uh, come up over the past few weeks. Um... But in the region of Southwest Asia, uh, particularly, there are some interesting developments. Uh, for example, uh, Gazprom, the uh, Russian energy uh, resource giant, uh, signaled yesterday, according to Isabel Gorst, uh, that it would fight to retain influence over Central Asian gas exports, settling an eight-month trade dispute with Turkmenistan and saying it would rebuild pipelines to bring Turkmen gas to Europe. Alexander Medvedev, deputy chief executive of the Russian state energy company, said Moscow had agreed to buy up 30 billion cubic meters a year of gas from Turkmenistan starting next year. Of course, that probably uh, the former Soviet and all those people lined up uh, in Stalin's birthday party there, probably resentful of the fact that Turkmenistan, of course, former Soviet republic. Uh, Gazprom would also build a pipeline to link untapped gas reserves in East Turkmenistan with a new pipeline 
running along the Caspian coast from Central Asia to Russia. Uh, Dmitry Medvedev, Russia's president, on his second visit to Turkmen capital Ashgabat this year, welcomed the deal, saying after talks with Gurbanguly, you know, here's a name for you, Berd Mukhamadov, Berdi Mukhamadov, try that again, Gurbanguly, Berdi Mukhamedov. I'm going with that. Turkmenistan's leader, it would provide, quote, a good basis for our energy cooperation in the immediate term, close quote, the Interfax News Agency reported. The dispute erupted in April after a pipeline explosion halted Turkmenistan's gas exports to Russia, choking off the country's main source of foreign revenue. Turkmenistan accused Gazprom of causing the blast, a charge the Russian company denied. Uh, interesting in that uh, just last winter there was big uh, questions in Europe as to how reliable and uh, consistent a source uh, for energy in uh, Europe Gazprom would prove to be. The uh, cutthroat world of Russian big business is uh, a shady one. And uh, I'm sure there are a number of uh, things to uh, that will yet emerge from this business deal between uh, Turkmenistan and Gazprom. On a uh, related note that is connecting to other former Soviet republics, <clears throat> did you hear about the big elections in Uzbekistan? No? Well... They had some just last weekend. Um, and Isabel Gorst again writes, uh, West silent as Uzbekistan votes in sham election. A little editorializing in the headline. Uh, interesting things emerge, though. Western countries are expected to hold their tongue when Uzbeks go to the polls in a tightly controlled parliamentary vote this weekend to help secure Tashkent's help for the war in Afghanistan. Uzbekistan has no officially registered opposition parties, and critics of the government have been driven underground by political harassment. George W. Bush's passion for democracy never made it to Uzbekistan, and I suppose for that the Uzbekis should be grateful. Uh, to return to Gorst's article, all four political parties competing in the election support the government of Islam Karimov, the former Communist Party boss, who has ruled the Central Asian country for 20 years with a firm hand. So far, he's doing so good, right? Okay, well, after a pre-election mission to Tashkent, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe declined Uzbekistan's invitation to observe the poll. Quote, given that fundamental freedoms continue to be limited, that the current political spectrum does not offer the electorate a genuine choice between competing political alternatives, that previous key um, organization for security of cooperation in Europe recommendations remain unaddressed, and that no progress has been achieved in bringing the legal framework closer in line with OSCE commitments. The election will be a sham, said Maisie Weichtering, a Central Asia expert at Amnesty International. Western countries imposed sanctions on Uzbekistan after Mr. Karimov refused to allow an international inquiry into the quashing of an uprising in the eastern city of Andizan in 2005. The official death toll was 189, but witnesses said casualties were higher. Tashkent responded to the criticism by evicting the U.S. from an airbase used for strikes in Afghanistan. 
and redirecting its attention towards Russia and China. With the Taliban gaining ground in Afghanistan and NATO supply lines from Pakistan coming under attack, the West has been keen for a reconciliation with Tashkent. General David Petraeus, head of U.S. Central Command, has visited twice this year, and in October, the European Union <coughs> excuse me, lifted the last of its sanctions, an embargo on arms sales, while citing an improvement in human rights. Okay. Uzbekistan has reacted positively, allowing U.S. convoys to carry non-lethal goods across its territory. As Tashkent has mended ties with the West, tensions have emerged with Moscow over its pursuit of greater military influence in Central Asia. Uzbekistan this summer opposed a Kremlin plan to station troops in South Kyrgyzstan, close to its frontier, and refused to join military exercises with a new Russian-led rapid reaction force formed by the Collective Treaty Security Organization, a group of former Soviet states. Sort of a desperate attempt to have a new counterpart uh, to NATO. No doubt. Andrew Kuchins, the director of the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, said Uzbekistan would use cooperation with the U.S. military to, quote, give legitimacy to its much pilloried regime and act as a counterweight to Russian military ambitions in Central Asia. And so the Uzbekis try to play the U.S. desire to get back in their good graces and we're being played by the Uzbekis off the Russians. So times change, I guess. Well, last week there was an interesting change in the way that Iraq has been able to do business with oil. And as of December 14th, uh, Gazprom and other European oil groups were able to snap up a number of deals as Iraq uh, reversed the more than 30-year-old nationalization of its oil industry, which happened back in 1972. Remember the uh, fantastical, illusory suggestions by Paul Wolfowitz, I believe, that the Iraq war would pay for itself when the Iraqis began pumping crude and uh, were able to rejoin the world marketplace. Well, it never quite materialized and worked out that way. And ironically, as it would happen, the U.S. misses out in the race to get access to this Iraqi oil shell, um, Royal Dutch Shell, an Anglo-Dutch energy company, has won the right to develop Iraq's giant Majnoon oil field. Uh, the French major corporation Total Group, which uh, had previously looked like they were going to get that lucrative prize, was beat out by Royal Dutch Shell. Um, Kerala Hoyas uh, in London, writing in December 12th in the Financial Times, notes that an Iraqi oil exec executive called this auction, which marks the re-entry of foreign companies 37 years after the nationalization, of the country's uh, entire gold industry, quote, the second gold rush. Uh, and it comes in spite of bomb attacks in Baghdad last Tuesday, which claimed more than 100 lives, and amid widespread uncertainty over Iraq's political stability. Six years after Saddam Hussein's overthrow, the auctions were a step towards Iraq, regaining its place as a large oil producer 
in the Middle East. The Royal Dutch Shell Group accepted a very low fee of $1.39. Yes, that's $1.39 a barrel and promised to boost the Majnoon Fields production to 1.8 million barrels a day, far higher than the 700,000 minimum level set by Iraq's oil ministry. The field currently produces just 46,000 barrels a day. This is, in fact, uh, according to the standards of the industry, a very low bid for Shell to have accepted. But the vastness of this particular field and the fact that they can, you know, go from 40s, if they're making $1.39 a barrel, Royal Dutch, that is, get out your calculator and figure how much they'll be making a day if they can crank that uh, output up to 700,000 or 1.8 million barrels a day and you begin to get a grasp of just how much, uh, how vast these riches are. And uh, quoting uh, Rod Al-Qadiri, an analyst uh, of the energy industry who's quoted here, he says, uh, quote, the international oil companies have raced each other to the bottom to get to Iraq's reserves. The Iraqis have got to be glowing after this round. Uh, well, if their capacity to uh, not simply drill their own oil, but to sell their own oil, and dare I say, even to develop and transform the crude oil into petroleum and other products, hadn't been destroyed so effectively by the uh, sanctions campaign, Saddam Hussein's own foolish war against Kuwait, of course, uh, instigating the first Gulf War. Um, it's very interesting to imagine the different, very different history that the people of Iraq might have enjoyed. Uh, as it stands, the U.S. Uh, corporations simply stand by and watch the European and Russian companies Squeeze in and uh, lap up those uh, contracts. Of course, the next question for Iraq is, will they be allowed to drill beyond the suggested drilling limits uh, imposed by agreement within OPEC? They're trying to uh, restabilize the price of oil per barrel. They've recently met, and as of December 23rd, have signaled an oil price target of 70 to $80 a barrel. Uh, Iraq is uh, setting the stage for a fight with fellow OPEC members about its production levels, and they are warning that they have been, quote, deprived of their fair share of out oil output for a long time. And indeed, that's uh, for the obvious reasons I've just uh, entailed. Uh, very true. And at the moment, the price of crude oil has uh, jumped up to $76 a barrel. And just a few minutes left to go in the program. Uh, quickly mention, I don't know how much longer the film is going to be in town, but I've begun to read Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, and I'm looking forward to getting over to seeing that film myself was downtown at the state. I believe they're going to continue to have it for a few days, if not through to the uh, next week. But for those of you still taking advantage of the uh, break between academic uh, periods, 
go out and uh, treat yourself to a movie. Number of uh, great theaters in town, and uh, that movie I've heard is uh, rather grim and quite scary, but uh, pretty impressive. Um, did make it over to see Zombieland at the Dollar Theater, and I, the only reason I really mention that is because I think there's some interesting uh, psychological trends that you begin to notice in films uh, when wave after wave of film in a given year seems to strike a similar chord. And the I don't really know when Cormac McCarthy wrote his book, The Road, but it's set essentially in a sort of an unnamed uh, post-apocalyptic, not-too-distant future. Uh, and, of course, Zombieland posits a standard uh, classic zombie apocalypse scenario. Um, but with the economic collapse that the country has experienced in the last uh, year and a half, two years, uh, these films, and I would include Avatar in this too, which has implications for military occupation and so forth. Haven't seen that one yet either. Uh, but the sort of dread scenario that everything that you've ever known and relied on could vanish instantly is something that I think Americans almost need entertainment, as in Hollywood films, to remind them of because they they don't seem to be willing or able to come to terms with the stark reality of life in a brutal universe uh, without a little nudge. Uh, and on that note, and we're in the final moments of the program here since I began by sort of applauding China's uh, willingness to invest and develop mass transit systems, I'll end the program by noting that the number one box office movie out of Hollywood in China this year might surprise you. It was 2012. That, uh, you know, you see the trailer of 2012. When it comes to the Dollar Theater, I'll probably go see it just so I can see what's in it beyond what they show you in the trailer. Because what you see in the trailer is essentially every kind of thing that exists on the surface of the earth collapse except for the plane that John Cusack and his family are able to rush through all of these collapsing roads and bridges and airport runways and get up in the air. And I can just hardly wait to see uh, where they land or if the air itself collapses from under them. But uh, we'll have to get back to you on that when we've seen it. But uh, that's what they're afraid of in China. And... Uh, they probably had to pay more than $1.50 to see it, so stick around. Wait for that. You are listening to WCBN-FM in Ann Arbor. Thanks very much to Andrew for coming down and engineering tonight. Dick Whaley will return next Monday. And be safe and have a fruitful and let's have a hopeful new year in Michigan this year. Uh, so thanks for listening and take care. And thanks to the guys at Gray Matters for their insightful commentary. Excuse me, I was listening to Sylvester Pussycat all afternoon. I've picked up some of his linguistic habits. Anyway, yeah, be, be on the lookout for disaster movies and uh, world disasters in general. If the world really does collapse in 2012, we can just ask James Cameron to use the skills he developed during Avatar and have him build another world. It'll all balance out. You're listening to